Welcome back to Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame and co-host of the ACA Media Podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. The AAPB website now features over 74,000 public radio and television items streaming online. And this podcast brings you conversations with the scholars, educators, and media producers who have used or created that archival material, and they share their insights into what gems are there awaiting your visit to AmericanArchive.org. I have two guests today, both of whom are pivotal to the history of PBS's evening news broadcast, NewsHour. The name you likely don't know because she did her work off screen is Annette Miller. She began working for the program in 1975 as one of two staff members in Washington, D.C., back when it was called the Robert McNeil Report. She started as a politics producer and quickly became an essential research chief for Jim Lehrer. Under her watch, the show expanded into an hour and was renamed PBS NewsHour. And across her tenure, she held titles such as News Director and Director of Research, and she eventually became Vice President of NewsHour Productions, a position she held until her recent retirement. The name you'll definitely know is Judy Woodruff, the anchor and managing editor of PBS NewsHour. After graduating from Duke University, she began her career in local news in Atlanta, and then in 1975 began working at NBC News. She moved over to PBS in 1983 as the chief Washington correspondent for NewsHour and also began hosting Frontline. She then left in 1993 to anchor news shows at CNN before returning to PBS in 2006. In 2011, Woodruff stepped in as one of the rotating anchors of NewsHour when Jim Lehrer retired, and a few years later, she was installed as the permanent co-anchor alongside Gwen Ifill. When Ifill passed away in 2016, Woodruff became the sole anchor of PBS NewsHour. So I'm very honored to invite Annette Miller and Judy Woodruff to the Presenting the Past podcast. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, and it is currently Women's History Month, so uh, we're really excited to talk about the history of two really important women in broadcast journalism. So let's start back at a time when it wasn't as easy for women in TV in the mid-70s. So what led you each into the field of broadcast journalism, and how did you establish a presence and work your way up at a time when women in prominent positions were more of a rarity? Uh, Judy, you want to start? Well, I actually started in the 60s. I go ah. way back, way, right. way farther back than Annette. Uh, I graduated from college in 1968 and was lucky to land a job as a secretary uh, in the newsroom for the ABC affiliate in Atlanta. And that's where I fell in love with reporting. I thought I was interested in journalism, but it wasn't until I was able to hang around with reporters and watch them every day. Uh, and I did that for a year and a half. A little bit of that time I spent doing the Sunday night weekend weather for five minutes on this uh, ABC station in Atlanta. It was not something I wanted to do, was kind of dragged into it because I was told if I didn't get some on-air experience somehow, I was never gonna have a shot as a reporter. That was my entree and I was very lucky to be hired by a uh, the CBS affiliate news director who hired me to cover the Georgia State Legislature. So, and that was in 1970. Uh, and there weren't many women around at that time. And Annette, you don't go back as far as I do, but, but you saw it too. I don't go almost this far. Uh, I, I started in uh, 1973 and um, I, it was right out of college. And my uh, an adjunct professor who taught me uh, radio news was uh, working at Mutual Broadcasting. And I called him after I graduated and I said, do you have any leads on a job? And he said, let me look into it. And he called me back and he said, you're not going to believe this. I've just been uh, told I can hire a news editor uh, at, the, at the New York Bureau. Uh, he said, you're hired. So I came to work uh, and I was the only woman there. And uh, within two weeks, uh, he came into the edit room and he said, the boss just called from Washington. And he said, uh, I hear you hired a girl. <laughs> and, and the uh, uh, he said, "Yeah, well, you told me to hire a news editor." He said, well, "I didn't tell you to hire a girl." <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so that's uh, that was my start, and then I was transferred to the Washington bureau, where I was also the only woman. In the and uh, fortunately, uh, within about three months, they hired a, a woman engineer, who uh, to, who's still one of my best friends because we just bonded right away. <laughs> there was the only two women in the newsroom, so uh, that was my start, and uh, and then I went. Went back to graduate school, came out, and got a job of this little fledgling thing called the Robert McNeil Report in the Washington office. There were only two of us, both women, and uh, Jim Lehrer. And uh, the rest is history. We were, And in fact, once I moved to, to uh, the news, well, McNeil Lehrer, being a woman became absolutely 
a non-issue because most of the people who worked in, at the McNeil era were women from the very, very beginning. That was in 1975. Well, why is it? Why do you think that is? Uh, probably a number of reasons. Uh, several of us were talking, particularly in the Washington office, that Jim Lara was uh, very comfortable around women because he had a wife and three daughters. And, and he found that a, a comfortable position to be in. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think in the early days, uh, women were paid less. And so that was another issue. There <laughs> uh, was a very small budget. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it was a combination of things. things. Things definitely were changing, you know, in the mid 70s. Yeah, they certainly had been changing. And I mean, it's so good to hear that about public media, because in broadcast media, you know, this this just reminds me of the of the story when I was interviewing to be the newsroom secretary, uh, the news director. uh, And I had a great conversation. I was studying political science. I thought I brought all this great academic credential uh, to the to the job. And I got up to leave after he told me I was hired. He said, besides, how could I not hire somebody with legs like yours? So, mm, ouch. Indeed. (laughs) So I'd like to tell you that I had a great comeback. Um, I just sort of slunk out the door thinking, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Mm. And then I was reminded not long ago that when I then later went to work, as I mentioned, for the CBS affiliate and was hired to cover the Georgia legislature, one of the other reporters uh, I guess he saw me in the newsroom filling out some form or something, and he went over to the news director and said, I see you hired another dumb blonde. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> wow. Well, and I suppose all you could do now is laugh about it, but my gosh, that's got to be hard. Yeah. I didn't hear him that at that moment. I tr- tremble to think what I would have said to him if I had, if I had heard it. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear about it till later. Well, and of course, you made TV history as well later when you and Gwen Ifill became the first female team to co-anchor a national news broadcast in the U.S. So what can you tell us about that milestone in broadcasting history? Well, that was quite a few years later. Uh, it was 2013, 2014, when uh, this was after uh, not only Robin had retired, as Annette mentioned, uh, McNeil Lehrer earlier, Robin McNeil retired, and then in 20. 12, 2011, Jim Lehrer retired, and uh, there were several of us who were named sort of rotating anchors, and then along came 2013, 2014, and they uh, decided that they wanted Gwen, the beloved, our late beloved colleague Gwen Eiffel, uh, and me to be the co-anchors, and it did make history because, believe it or not, there had not been two women co-anchoring a national news broadcast uh, at that point. And um, what, what's so interesting about it is both Gwen and I, of course, were thrilled. We were excited. We had, you know, an amazing team at the news hour then to work with. But we knew that there was going to be a lot of, you know, quiet conversation. About, ah, two women, how are they going to get along? And, and not to mention, you know, the fact that we came, Gwen came from print, I came from television. She had been at the news hour for a while then. But we both had, you know, we brought our respective backgrounds, but we decided early on that we were going to be very, very close and not let, you know, any of the skeptics get between us. You know, we just anticipated there were going to, there was going to be talk about cat fights between the two women. You know, that's the, that's sort of the mantra that goes along with, you know, women in the workplace. But Gwen and I became very close friends and, you know, it's, it's just tragic that that we lost when a few years later. You know, within the news hour, it was funny because having such a female culture all over the years, from the inside, when Gwen and Judy were named, it never occurred to me until it was announced that they were the first women co-anchors that it was history making because it seemed natural. You know, it started in 1978 or 79 with Charlene Hunter-Gault and then Judy came, I think, in 83. And there was Elizabeth Farnsworth and, and Margaret Warner and, and so many other women in very prominent positions at NewsHour that it never occurred to me until someone said, this is the first female anchor team. They said, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you know, going back to Charlene in the very beginning, who still, by the way, contributes to the NewsHour right. to this day. So along the way, through all of that, you're just trying to do your job. So let's turn to that now, your jobs and a typical day at news hour. What goes into deciding what news stories will be broadcast on a given night uh, from the producer's perspective and then from the reporter or anchor perspective? Well, I have to say, uh, you know, we're talking at a very busy news time as we are having this conversation. We're covering 
this terrible war in uh, Ukraine and um, watching death and destruction every day. So that has become a huge part of what we do. But but our routine is really, it, it's really, a, I mean, it's kind of, to me, it's an amazing thing to watch. We've got a staff of, I don't even know how many people it is. I know we've added a number of people in the last few years, particularly on the digital side, but also on the on the broadcast, the television side. Um, we are, you know, we're over, what, over 125, maybe 150 people. Uh, we have a morning meeting every day at 9 o'clock Eastern, where I would say anywhere from 60, 70, 80, 90 people participate on this call. Um, it's been Zoom ever since the start of the pandemic in March of, of 2020. And frankly, everybody is invited to, to contribute. We do have the senior producers for each one of the three main beats. Annette knows this very well. There's a foreign affairs beat, which right now, because of what's going on overseas, they take the lead in proposing whatever stories they think are most important to get on the program that night, whether it's an interview or a videotape report from abroad. Um, and so we hear from the foreign beat, we hear from the political and other issues beat. And then we hear finally from the national beat, which is everything from the economy to health care, which you can imagine during the pandemic, they were enormously busy. But so the senior producers present, the rest of us respond. We have a conversation. We talk about who should we be talking to today. And then you factor into this the work that's been done in previous weeks pieces that were done, interviews that were done that are now ready to go. They've been edited. They are five, six, seven, eight minutes long. And we are factoring in, okay, we want to lead with Ukraine or we're going to lead with COVID. And we've got a story uh, about, uh, you know, an interesting farmer in Idaho, you know, and so, and it's black, say it's Black History Month. And you know, we've got a couple of feature pieces tonight on, on black writers, for example. And we'll put that together nine o'clock in the morning, nine thirty, ten, and then through the day that evolves. It it sometimes it holds. Uh, more times than not, it doesn't hold. News comes in, something changes, a guest isn't available. I mean, just as an example, today I'm supposed to tape an interview in the mid-afternoon with Dr. Anthony Fauci about COVID, about COVID funding. We think that's solid, but we, it's been known to happen. Uh, you know, his schedule could change. He gets called to the White House. Um, and so we have to scramble and figure out how are we going to make a replacement. Or news happens and we change the show. But but there is a structure. It's a, it's a terrific. Uh, what I love about our executive producer, Sarah Justice, she's really good at pulling in comments and ideas from everybody on the staff. And to me, that's the strength of the news hour, that it's not just the work of Judy Woodruff and the correspondents. And by the way, I'm so blessed to work with this extraordinary team of correspondents. Annette knows them well. But it's it's the ideas of everybody there, the producers, the editors, um, just, you know, frankly, people all, and people all over the country now. Now, I think this process has evolved over the years. In the, in the early days, it was just about a handful of people were in the morning meeting, maybe uh, first a half a dozen and then maybe as many as a dozen. As its staff has grown measurably since then, for one. But having everybody in the meeting has increased the uh, the texture of the, of the news hour, has made it a more textured product. I, I think it's really helped a lot. You know, you have you have the stuff that's fun to watch. You have the stuff that's important to watch. You have the stuff that that attracts different generations. It's it's really great. Do you think there's something particularly distinctive then about the news hour approach to news that might be different from what is happening at the same time at say CNN or CBS News? I think so. I think I think it's far more textured than than other other newscasts. Uh, you know, obviously, a story like Ukraine is going to dominate anybody's newscast. I mean, it's and and there have been way too many of those type stories in the past. I was saying before Judy got on uh, that in the last five or six years, I mean, it has been nonstop news cycle and and with one or two stories just dominating the way they never did before. So that that changed a lot too. But uh, but I, I still think that news hour. I mean. It, for example, the art speed. I mean, very few people have an art speed, and uh, and have those uh, interesting stories that that sometimes meld with the news of the day, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just take you in another direction. But it's it's a it's a relief. <laughs> it's a wonderful direction. 
Yeah, you know, it's exactly what Annette said. It's it's having something like the arts beat. You know, Jeff Brown has taken that. Uh, we call it canvas um, now, and it's everything from writers to dancers to musicians, uh, people who are in the theater. It's just been it's been the, a, a rich tapestry, frankly, of American art, of the American art scene and, and even international at times. The other thing I would say is that the, tr the mission of the News Hour from the beginning, when Jim and Robin came together, was to offer a deeper look than what was available on the commercial networks. Um, we never, I think Annette can, can explain this much better than I can, but, but, the, but the idea was that, you know, there's more to the news than just telling the who, what, when, where. It's the why, it's how did we get here, it's the historical context. And that's really driven us from the very beginning. And even though the look of the show is very different today, in the beginning, there were long interviews that Jim did or Robin did or Charlene did. And then when I came along, I mean, I remember doing 15 minute long <laughs> interviews on trade policy or, you know, really exciting stuff. Um, because we're all nerds at the news hour uh, in the best sense. And that's changed. People's attention spans have shortened you know, enormously given what's going on with the internet and social media. So that's, that all has, has taken its, its place. But the mission hasn't changed. And the mission still is to take you beyond what is obvious, what you've seen somewhere else or heard on the radio. It's to, to take you to people who have that deeper level of understanding. So you come away from the news hour learning something every night and hearing something you didn't you hadn't heard anywhere else. And if we can do that every day, we, we think we've accomplished something. But every new day is a challenge. It's a clean slate every day. It's a big challenge, you know, to get it right, to get it right every day. You know, Robin McNeil, when he first started, when he, the very first days, uh, he described the program. Uh, he said, well, he said, people have a rush of water, uh, a stream just rushing over them with news every day. And what we like to do is to dip a cup into the stream and take out one cup of water and look at it carefully. And that is uh, sort of what we still do. I, I, I say we, I'm not there anymore, but uh, what we still do. Uh, and uh it's it's you know that that what Judy was saying that analysis of you know you, you have to get the who what when where why but you also have to get the texture of it I guess keep using that word but it's it's a uh, you you have to understand where it came from you know where that water came from where it's going and uh, and what it's made of. Well, Judy mentioned the idea that audiences today want kind of short bits, right, kind of a social media age mentality. And actually another milestone for NewsHour came in 1983 when you expanded to an hour-long program. So I'm curious about that and what production decisions go into your assumptions about, you know, how the audience might react to what kind of time you have or, you know, give to covering issues. Well, I joined that year. I, I uh, had been at NBC News and uh, started having conversations with Jim and with Les Crystal, who was then the uh, incoming or executive producer of what would become the hour-long news. It had been the McNeil Era Report, half an hour from 1975 until mid-83. And then in September, in fact, Labor Day 1983, we went on the air as an hour uh, Jim and Robin had successfully lobbied the PBS stations around the country, the major stations and others, to persuade them that they should give up a half an hour of precious uh, territory uh, in the evening to turn it over to the news app, what would then be the news hour. Um, I mean, to me, this is just a fascinating time because all three of the commercial networks had been talking then about how they were looking to go to an hour, you know, ABC, NBC, but nobody was doing it because frankly, the affiliate stations didn't want to give up that time. They wanted Wheel of Fortune or I don't know, Jeopardy. I don't know, whatever, remember whatever shows, but th those are lucrative for the stations and it was an economic decision. I'm sure other ideas went into their decision-making, but the, as you know, the networks never went to an hour. They're all still half an hour minus commercials. You know, what does it say? Give us 22 minutes and we'll give you the world. <laughs> um, the, the view of Jim and Robin, that that's not enough. 22 minutes isn't enough. Um, and they never set themselves out to be competing with the networks, but but to, frankly, build on what, what uh, commercial uh, news was doing. Um, but Annette, you were there that year when the change happened internally. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a big 
Jake, it was yeah. a big lift. I mean, and particularly for Jim and Robin to sell the stations. I mean, it, it was, uh, as, as they, they have said many times, they, several of the station managers said to them, I, th I thought you already were an hour. Or Jim's favorite line is, uh, we, we dare to be boring, <laughs> which was, <laughs> and it takes guts. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, I thought Robin said that. I thought Robin was the one who coined "We Dare to Be Boring," but maybe it was Jim. Okay, maybe I might. I may have got maybe wrong. both. Maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the um, you know it, it was it was a hard lift. Uh, the original concept of the show was we we would be a complement to the to the network news. We would be uh, they they'd tell you the, the headlines and we would take one story and enlarge on it and and explain it to, to the to the audience but then they decided that that at an hour they could do more than one story uh and explain it to the audience they could also do headlines and there was a lot of uh, judy will remember there was a lot of uh playing with the format for the first year you know there was whether there was a, a news summary at the postcards. beginning postcards postcards you remember the postcards <laughs> We had this feature where we, you know, today you notice there's a little bit of music and what we call a bumper in between, and we'll put up a factoid, which tells you something about the previous segment. You know, I don't know how many, how many babies were born last year. If we've just been discussing populations, but we experimented with having what we call postcards, which was a visual picture from around the country. You know, beautiful flowers in a field or trees. And at some point, somebody said, you know, <laughs> doesn't work in a newscast. We need something that's projecting forward, and informing and so forth. So but there were other ideas we had. You know, I think the music evolved a little bit, I think, from the half hour to the hour. And then it changed again. Yeah. Um, with, with the Gwen and, mm -hmm. and Judy evolution. It, it, it still has the, the, a little bit of the basic uh, Bernie Hoffer original score, but it, it's just evolved and evolved and evolved over over time. You know, overall in the United States right now, we have CNN is at a crisis point. There are economic challenges, damage of misinformation. There are credibility concerns in news. So what are your perspectives on that and particularly the place of public media, like PBS NewsHour's role in journalism today in this really challenging time for journalism? Well, I can start and just say that we, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that journalism in, the, in our country has been under assault really for the last six, seven years, since 2015, 2016, since, you know, we had a politic, we had politics in this country and then a president who argued that much of the media, most of the media was fake and that uh, it, it was the news was not to be believed and that reporters were, in his words, enemies of the American people rather than being here to do public service, which is how I've always viewed journalism. It's we're here to serve the American people, the public, to give them the information they need to, to function as citizens. Uh, but instead, we had a uh, a candidate and then a president who turned that on its head and had just a, the opposite focus. And th I think that's proven. I don't put the put the blame only on former President Trump, but I think that the pace was set by much of what his beliefs were. And uh, I think much, uh, you know, there were many, many politicians who followed along behind him with those same arguments and they persist today as he as he persists today in making those same statements. So it made our work not only more challenging on a day-to-day -day basis to explain, you know, we have this information and we know that it's true because we checked out the sources. You know, the old-fashioned idea of, you know, you confirm something with at least two sources and there are sources who are credible. It seems to me we had to go an extra step and explain why we believe something to be accurate. But when even that is, is declared, quote, fake by powerful figures, uh, it makes your work even more difficult and challenging. And so the press was under a microscope and, uh, and then that, frankly, that attitude spread among the American people. There are now a huge, large percentage, I don't know what the latest polls show, of Americans who say they don't believe the media, they don't trust the media. So we've got a lot of work to do, journalists broadly speaking, to try to restore the faith of, of the public in the work that we do. And I don't underestimate the difficulty of that. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, journalists have never been doing this as a popularity contest, but at least 
I think it's really important for the American people to understand and for journalists to understand that our role is here uh, to get information out there. It's one of the one of the essential elements of our democracy, but we're not there. You asked just quickly, Christine, about the role of the news hour, and it's just been, it's pretty much been what I said. I mean, we have felt and I have felt from the beginning of this, of this era, this period, that we have to work extra hard to be accurate, which has always been just a given. You know, of course, you're going to be accurate. You're going to try to be accurate, and when you make a mistake, admit it. But also uh, to be as, as fair as we can be in our reporting, to make sure we're getting all points of view, uh, even the most skeptical, people who are skeptical of what we're doing, it's important to get those voices on and to plow ahead every day and not to get caught up in the day-to-day uh, criticism of the media. It's not in our interest ever to get in a fight with uh, our political leadership. Our job is to cover the news and keep doing that day after day after day. You know, I find the, the mailbag fascinating for the news hour because the, the letters, the, the emails that come in from viewers, and on any given day, you will find one that says, uh, no, you're favoring the left. And the next one will say, no, you're favoring the right. And yet you say, well, it must be doing something right because both, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's really interesting how viewers bring their own perspective to what they're seeing on the screen or, and hearing uh, from the newscasters. And it, it's really, you know, there is there is such a division now between people who watch, you know, the right-wing media and the left-wing media, but it seems that there seems to be a, a pretty good mix of people watching NewsHour, and they do bring to it what they want to bring to it in some sense, but they are respecting it as something that the both sides can watch. So the reason you're on this podcast is because of the PBS NewsHour collection in the AAPB. So that's thousands of broadcasts that you both worked on and an extremely rich resource of moments in American and global history and broadcasting history. So I wonder if there's any broadcasts that you would flag for our listeners as particularly interesting or important viewing or, you know, really important historical moments that you remember well. Well, Annette, you know, maybe you want to talk about the earlier era. I mean, Jim and Robin had some extraordinary, I mean, the programming, of course, extraordinary, but Jim and Robin had some extraordinary interviews with world leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, what, the Ayatollah in the early days of the Iranian Mm -hmm. Revolution and so many others. Yeah, that era, Judy, is what I was going to raise also. The, um, in 19, was it when the hostage crisis, it was in 1979, yeah, seventy nine, and then into, into 80, eighty. When actually, right, 80, when yeah. when Reagan, no, it's eighty one. It's eighty one. That's right. Yeah, it was. It started December of seventy nine yeah. and eighty. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had uh, amazing coverage, as Judy pointed out. I mean, we we had the Ayatollah, but before the Ayatollah, we had the Shah of Iran, and it was that was an amazing interview in Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, with Jim and Robin sitting down with the Shah, and uh, Jim just pointedly said, "How many political prisoners do you have?" And and, and he said, "You know." I don't know. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was something like 3,000. And, you know, just it was matter of fact. And uh, it it was an interesting there was there were demonstrations outside the the, uh, the place where they were in Williamsburg. And it it was it was a fraught time. Well, let's dip into the AAPB archive and listen to that moment. So this is Jim Lehrer and Robert McNeil talking with the Shah of Iran in November 1977. And the things that uh, they are charging uh, against you and, and your government fall in this area of human rights, and they particularly, particularly in the area of squelching political dissent. And so my question is this, are there 100,000 political prisoners now in Iranian jails as they charge? There are 2,200. What are their crimes? What are these 2,200? Mostly uh, terrorists and uh, all of them Marxists. Would demonstrating, like the people here in Williamsburg are doing today and they're planning to do in Washington tomorrow, would that be considered a crime in in Iran? Not a simple demonstration. That depends what uh, they would say if they say things that are forbidden by the law in the country. Obviously, they will be prosecuted otherwise no well just just from just from so well so i'll understand this and the american audience understand what is considered a a a crime punishable by jail in the political area in iran for us is is to criticize you personally is that a crime punishable by imprisonment? Uh, that depends what it is said 
But what, it, uh, what is outlawed in our country, uh, it's communism. It's communism. Yes. It's, it, so if you advocate communism, that in itself is a crime. That's illegal. That's illegal. To criticize you and your government is not illegal. Uh, not the government, anyway. Mm. My God, they are doing that all the time. But you, yourself? Is that permitted? Uh, not if it is against uh, what you call les majesté in, in French. I think that this is a law that you have in many places. And then Robin went to Paris, or outside of Paris, where the Ayatollah was um, in exile. And I remember we had a wonderful young reporter in those days named Rob Hirschman. And Rob, I, I, I'll remember that morning meeting when Rob came in and said, we can get an interview with this, this Ayatollah. And uh, he started explaining, this, this guy is like the Pope of Iran. And everybody going, what? You know? And uh, so they agreed to go and, and interview him. And uh, I happened to tag along on that um, trip because I was, uh, we went to London first and did uh, Nixon's first speech after his presidency at Ox the Oxford Union. And I was, I was doing politics at the time. So I went to London for, to help Robin with that. And then they were going on to Paris and I had never been to Paris. So I paid my own way and went, went to join them on the trip. Uh, and uh, it was it was just amazing. I mean, the Ayatollah, you know, was sitting on the on the ground uh, with Robin sitting cross legged with him and uh, talking about, uh, are you arming your followers? And, and the Ayatollah said, yes, he was arming his followers. And it was a fascinating interview. Ayatollah, do you know yourself whether your followers are armed? آیا خود شما ارسایت الله مطلع هستید که طرفداراتون مسلح شدند؟ به ما گفتند که ما میخوایم محیا بشیم من هم اجازه محیا شدن را دادم They have told me that they are getting prepared and I have given the permission to prepare themselves Which means getting arms که به معنای اینه که اصلاح جانوری بکنه Yes and, uh, and then it, what followed was a, a, a lot of interviews in the studio, which Rob Hirschman had uh, arranged with a lot of the dissidents, the followers of the Ayatollah, the followers of the Shah, uh, in, in a McNeil-Lara style discussion. But it really got into the inner workings of what was happening in Iran and why it was happening. And so that whole series was, was incredible. And then there was the wars in uh, Central America, which... Uh, Charles Krauss was a correspondent then for us, and he did amazing work trudging through the uh, uh, fields in, in Central America, um, in Nicaragua and El Salvador, and coming back with wonderful, wonderful stories. Let's listen to an excerpt of one of those reports from Charles Krauss. He's reporting here from Nicaragua in December 1984. And incidentally, this clip is part of a new exhibit on the AAPB website titled Burning with a Deadly Heat, News Hour Coverage of the Hot Wars of the Cold War. Special correspondent Charles Krauss filed this report from one of the central battlefields in Nicaragua. From afar, Hinotega looks much like any other provincial capital in Central America. It's quiet, peaceful, a traditional place of farms, coffee haciendas, and small businesses. But the picture from afar is misleading. Hinotega is today a city at the edge of war. Sunday morning, December 2nd, 1984. The Sandinista army moves a convoy of troops and heavy artillery to the front. There's fighting in the nearby mountains. Just 20 miles from Hinotega City, the Contras have ambushed an army patrol. At least nine government soldiers are dead. And another typical day of fighting has begun. Backed by Cuba and the Soviet Union, the Sandinistas claim they're fighting to defend their socialist revolution. Backed by the United States, the Contras claim they're fighting for democracy. Hinotega province is within easy striking distance of the Contras training and supply bases in Honduras. It's become the war's principal battleground. So those were some of the early ones. Uh, and then as one who worked on the politics beat, uh, we had some fascinating, you know, I remember in, um, you know, in 76, you know, we started doing a series about the candidates and you got to know people who worked for them. We didn't have the ability to go out with camera crews. We just didn't have the finances to do that. 
So we uh, would bring people into the studio. And I remember there were people like uh, Jody Pell and Hamilton Jordan, you know, who nobody knew who, who on earth they were, but they came into the studio to talk about their candidate, Jimmy Carter, whom Judy know, knew very well because she covered him in Georgia. And then we, you know, we did that with every candidate for years and years, uh, the people behind them. And those, those were very interesting interviews that gave a real sense of who they were and, and who was behind them and uh, you know, the kind, kind of people who worked for them. Yeah, I mean, Jim and Robin truly laid the groundwork there. And, and you know, you can't really talk about Jim Lehrer without mentioning the fact that he became sort of Mr. Debate Moderator. And this was not on the news hour per se, but Jim was so respected in his work. And because he was in Washington and closer, I guess you could say, to the political world, uh, the, the Commission on Presidential Debates invited Jim, I think, Annette, at one of the very first debates they sponsored, or I don't mm -hmm. know which year he started but he then went on what to to moderate was it 12 12 12 vice presidential, presidential and vice presidential and yeah. vice presidential yeah. uh debates while mm -hmm. he was also anchoring co-anchoring and then anchoring the news hour and, and i mean to the point that the last one he did was even he stopped anchoring i think at the end of 2011 and they asked him to uh moderate the presidential debate in 2012. so that's how respected jim was and of course that as i said that wasn't on the news hour but it certainly added to the in my view the respect the enormous respect that people had not just in the political world but across the country and then and that he was he was asked to interview i mean he was asked to do all four at one uh, in, in i think two cycles in a row it was amazing they couldn't they couldn't find anyone else that would they that both sides would accept and i i remember that first time i i, I met him in in again in williamsburg uh we, we were doing something it's called character above all which with a bunch of historians about the character it takes to be president and i i checked into the hotel and there was a note for me from jim said can you meet kate and me for dinner tonight or have big news and i said okay and i get there and he says they've asked me to host all four debates this year <laughs> and, and he, he couldn't believe it and that went on for at least at least two and maybe three cycles. cycles. Well, then, Annette, I know you were really important behind the scenes of doing research for those debates, too. And, and Judy did some debates as well. I only did one national vice presidential debate in 1988. That was Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle. Uh, but I did, other, I did other primary debates over the years. Yeah, but research is absolutely essential. You don't want to walk into a debate unprepared. Uh, and I know Jim, I mean, from talking to Jim about it, I know that was huge for him. And Annette was very much involved in that. Yeah, you know, he, he wanted, uh, he'd, he'd call me with uh, requests on different topic areas and you put together a, a binder of uh, clips on the topic areas and hi highlighted them and everything. Um, the, the other thing that was, I used to travel to the debates with him as well. And um, the, the role there was really, it was, it was really interesting because when you're, uh, a debate moderator, they put you in this bubble and you were closed off from the outside world. And it's such a tense, uh, incredibly tense uh, situation to be in. And I remember another uh, anchor who did a debate before Jim and I saw there was something really big that happened in Bosnia, I think it was that day. And he asked a question that night that showed me that he had, didn't know what happened in Bosnia that day. And I said, oh my gosh, and he, you know, he's in that bubble and he, he doesn't know. So the, my job, to some extent, was to keep watching the news and the wires and, and to make sure that Jim went in there knowing the latest news, that, uh, that he could adjust his questions accordingly. Yeah, and it, that research is so absolutely critical. I mean, um, it's, it's, the, it's the history of what the candidates have said and what, you know, and understanding the issues. But as Annette says, it's also bringing it up to date. So if they say something that contradicts what their running mate said the day before or that morning, you, you can, you know, it's your job to, to ask him about it. And Ju Judy's vice presidential debate was one of the more famous ones, which was the, uh, the, the you are no John F. Kennedy line oh, from Lloyd wow. Benson. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was, was a... Benson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, had, he was lying in wait because when <laughs> Quayle, Quayle, Quayle had made that point on the campaign trail, compared himself to Kennedy a few times. Right. He brought it up during the debate and Benson was ready. <laughs> you know, Senator, I, you know, I knew John Kennedy. John Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no John Kennedy. Anyway, of course, it, the, the Quayle Bush ticket went on to win. It didn't, it didn't affect the outcome, but it certainly got everybody's uh, reaction that night. 
well, it certainly is now, you know, of course, a legendary historical moment. So what does it feel like in the moment when a live situation like that or you're doing a broadcast and you realize this is going to be a notable historical moment? I think, I mean, for me, it's you are you are very much in the moment. You want to get it. You want to get the story right. Uh, because and, and the thing that complicates that right now is that information is coming at you from so many different sources. I mean, it used to be when I started out in journalism, there were the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And, and eventually I knew about the Washington Post. And there were three networks and PBS. Uh, today, I don't have to tell you. I mean, there's you know cable. There's endless cable channels. There's endless um, uh, social media, blogs, everything from Politico to Axios to, you know, if you cover politics, there are a million different places to get information. And then there's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and people are posting and people are making announcements. And you have presidents announcing policy changes on Twitter. Uh, you have foreign ministers of countries like, you know, in Europe today making statements on Twitter. So we have to watch all of that. And it's just, it puts you on hyper alert constantly. Um, I, I like to say that uh, today, a reporter, if you do your job well, you'll never sleep. Because, <laughs> because when you're asleep, a lot is gonna happen. And it, it is, I mean, honestly, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to stay on top. And, and I think it, the other thing that it does though, is I think it, it makes me realize even more the value of working with people who have experience and who have good judgment. Because it's not just, you know, who broke the story uh, and who, you know, who's tweeting this or that, but it's what does it mean and how does it fit into what we know? And is it confirmed? Just because somebody tweeted it or put up an Instagram post doesn't mean that it's correct or because it showed up on an Axios column this morning. Um, those are all sources I, I look at, but I absolutely have to confirm. If it comes from the Associated Press, I'm much more likely to accept it than I am if it came from some, un absolutely, than if it came from some unknown blogger somewhere. In fact, I'm not going to uh, accept that at all. But if it comes from a source that we can trust, or certainly if the, if the original uh, source. If the if President Zelensky says it and you see him saying it, that's one thing. But if somebody says that they heard that he said it, that's different. But it but it just means we have to work harder to do our job to confirm what we report and to weigh what we hear so that we don't just throw it all back at you, but we weigh what matters more in our view. Uh, and then frankly, in a story like this, I just have to say with Ukraine or any other breaking story, it's constantly changing. And so whatever we're telling you, Annette mentioned the river a minute ago, we, you know, we're reporting on, you know, where the water flow is at this minute, but five minutes from now, it's going to be in, a, we're going to be in a different place and reminding the audience of that. And part of that is you just listed off, you know, like all these other outlets, it's a competition and certainly in the public media space, it's a different type of competition maybe than perhaps what commercial outlets are dealing with. But how does that affect uh, you knowing that you're in a huge ecosystem with all kinds of competitors? Well, for me, um, it's, you know, it's that many more places to watch and be mindful of. If somebody else gets an interview with, for example, the president, uh, we're going to pay attention to that because the president's probably, uh, he probably agreed to do that interview in order to, to say something, to make a point, to get a, some news out. So we pay attention to that. Um, you know, we have to be aware. We have to have every pore <laughs> open every nerve ending is alive and taking it in and then once we've taken it in figuring out you know what matters and what what do we need to check out and does this change the trajectory i mean for example they're just giving an example the last few days there have been various reports and opinions that maybe a peace deal is in the offing based on what the russians are saying the ukrainian deputy foreign minister will say something and then we'll so we're watching that, but we're not ready to say at any given moment, ah, there's a peace deal. You know, we will say, this is what someone has reported. This is what someone said. So we're keeping an eye on it. Uh, you know, and everybody wants to know, you know, is Putin, is something going to happen to Putin? Is he going to be kicked out of office? Is he going to be dethroned? Lots and lots of rumors about him. But how much of that is really true? And so it's our job to look at each bit of information that we think has any 
any credibility and say, okay, is that worth looking at? Is it not? So judgment constantly goes into uh, weighing all these thousands of sources of information. And that's made the business so much harder than when Judy and I started as journalists. I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, there was so little uh, information when you look compared to today. I mean, we had Reuters wire and AP wire, and then some, at some point we had UPI wire, and it was, you know, clicking away in this little room, making a lot of noise, uh, and most of it was garbage. You know, there was nothing you'd want to cover anyway. But now it's 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 not the river that Robin talked about. It's it's an ocean. I mean, it is just coming at you from all sides. And I, you know, I'm I'm sort of glad I'm retired now. <laughs> Sorry, Judy. Well, we're not we're not glad you're retired. We wish you were still there. <laughs> uh, no, it, it really is. And and then and then the technology, to be honest, is is become so. Uh, you've got to learn so many new technologies almost every hour because the news is coming from another source, or you've got to present the news from uh, through another source and, and it's uh, through another through another outlet. And it's it's really, really hard these days. Well, we surely have some young listeners who aspire to be the next Judy Woodruff or Annette Miller. And besides being prepared to, I guess, not get a whole lot of sleep, uh, do you have any advice for aspiring journalists out there, particularly maybe women who would uh, love to follow in your footsteps? Jump in the water's fine. I mean, <laughs> I, for all the things I said a few minutes ago about the challenges of journalism, we need young, smart people who are curious, who who want to dig and and report and share what they learn with the American people. We need it, our democracy needs it. Um, and whether you choose to work in television or online, or in fact, the, the, the lines between print and every other kind of journalism today are completely blurred. Because if you go to work for the New York Times, I'm told they want you to be able to do videos. And if you, you know, and, and if obviously if you work for the news hour, you may be doing work for television, but you're also certainly doing work for digital, for online, for social media. I have to, you know, file in my own way for Twitter every day. I want to talk about report on what we are doing. I don't use Twitter as opinion. I use it as a place to project what I'm, you know, what we're doing. But it's, it's, we need young people, and certainly as the, the technology is changing, you know, the young people are the only ones who understand all exactly. this. <laughs> and and, um, and I, I have to have 20-somethings around me to, to help me get through the day. You know, when, when I started, you got with the crew, and it was the reporter, the producer, the cameraman, and the sound man. I said man because they, they most of them were men. And um, now uh, a journalist goes out with their, with their phone. And and they do the interview and they do the the, the uh, cutaways and they do and they and then they go home and they and back to the studio and they cut it they edit it themselves and so you you know and when I came back with with a piece of tape I'd go into the edit room and there would be an editor there and I, and we'd discuss how to cut it and now it's 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 really a very you have to be a very sharp technical person to do news these days. I mean, a great example of that is Lisa Desjardins. Mm -hmm. I was at a dinner last night where she received an award, yet another award. She's yes. getting several for her coverage of the January sixth attack on the Capitol. She, on her own, <laughs> carried the news hour for several hours that day because she she had a um, her version of her smartphone and a, a, not even, I guess, a stick, but something to hold it with. And that's how she reported from inside the Capitol as they broke the glass, as they came in, as she ran down the hall trying to talk to the uh, rioters who were breaking down windows and doors to get in and was, you know, frankly, was trying to keep herself safe. There was a point she was recording herself crouched behind a wall because the police had told her to stay down uh, that they didn't know what was going to happen. We now know most of the, or many of the people who came into the Capitol were armed. And Lisa was there without a crew, without anything. She had her herself. So um, you never know. Uh, I mean, that, that was a horrible day in the life of this country. And certainly for anybody who cares about, you know, the United States Capitol and all it represents. But Lisa did that on her own. And I think it, you know, among other things, that's one great inspiration for young people thinking about, you know, you can make a difference um, every day reporting the news and sometimes you're going to run into a story that you didn't expect. We all thought that day was just going to be another, you know, they're just going to certify the results. I remember in the early days, the uh, 
I, I was watching the wires and, and I saw that the government was going to run out of money in another two days. And I ran into Jim's office and I said, the government's going to run out of money in two days. And he, and he said, oh, it happens every year. You know, he said, these, these, these stories just repeat themselves. And then I remember the day of uh, uh, I, I pulled the wire and it was the Jonestown massacre. And I pointed to Jim and he said, this is one I've never seen before. <laughs> You know, the, the, every now and then there's a story, you know, there's so many stories that repeat themselves over and over again, and you, and you get kind of uh, inured to them. But but at, every now and then there's a story that you've never seen. And, and probably I'd say Ukraine is another one. I mean, since World War II, we have not really seen a, one sovereign nation invading another, you know, for no, no apparent reason. You know, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a new one. We thought we had a world, we thought we had a world order. <laughs> yeah, we certainly didn't have an invasion where you had social media where people have the ability to take pictures with their smartphones and send it back. Foreign news crews and Ukrainian news crews can get, I say crews, it's often an individual, can get in and get video and sound in ways we just didn't have access. I mean, we've had other wars, you know. Um, you know, what the Russians went into Afghanistan back in the 70s, and you had the Iran-Iraq war and other, but we, and you had this terrible Syrian war, the U.S., of course, going into Iraq twice, but you never had this level of sort of local recording in real time of what was going on. And just watching it happen in Ukraine is just, uh, so much of it is just soul-crushing to watch. Well, and also the idea of crisis in journalism and future in journalism, the local is really important. And, you know, people think of national stories and, and global stories, but it's so important to have local journalism as well. It is. And we we absolutely love um, being able to stay in touch with as many of the PBS stations around the country that have news coverage capacity. Some of them don't, many of them don't, but the ones who do, who have developed um, a news room, news operation of their own, we try to stay in, in frequent contact with them. They do pitch stories to us. We've also developed what we've called our community reporter program. We've hired reporters at different places around the country, St. Louis, New Orleans, uh, Detroit, uh, are, are just three of the places, and we're hoping to raise money to hire more. And they are reporters who know these areas and who bring their knowledge of that area and what's going on there to the news hour and they will will pitch stories to us so we not only have those contacts through the pbs stations which we welcome and are always open to but we now have uh these these journalists who have and this is just within the last year or so that they've come on board but it's it's been a a wonderful asset for us. And also, I'd like to make a pitch for student reporting labs, which is a, another uh, way to bring young journalists up in the business, uh, learn how to shoot a story, learn how uh, how to find facts and differentiate fact from fiction. Uh, and uh, they, they have, I think, hundreds at this point of uh, relationships with high schools, I think in some middle schools even, around the country. And some of them have produced wonderful pieces that have actually appeared on the news hour. That's right. And they've made it a focus to go uh, to, to look at schools in underserved areas, uh, uh, to, to be able to work with students who might not ever have had a chance to have an ex exposure to a, a national journalism program like the News Hours. So they and they bring a group of them to Washington every year, at least they were before the pandemic. And I'm sure it'll resume if the pandemic ever ends. <laughs> well, on that point you made earlier, Judy, about the kind of long road to restoring faith and credibility in journalism, it seems like a big part of that is starting in schools and teaching media literacy and empowering young people, and in particular, traditionally marginalized people, people who have felt like the news wasn't speaking for them, uh, and empowering Empowering them to be able to participate. No, no question. I mean, I I like to think of myself as aware and uh, pay attention to these things, but I have to say that I've been educated to a large degree by talking with young people, talking with these students, I, because I do try to meet with them when they come to Washington, and just hearing how many of them feel, and frankly, many of the young people we've hired on the news hour in the last few years will tell us that they don't feel the news in the past has rep represented them, has heard their community, has heard their voices, whether it's Native American, African American, Hispanic, and, and so many other just underrepresented, underheard. Look at what news looks like across the country. For the longest time, first of all, it was white male as Annette said, and then it was white. It was, you know, women gradually were accepted and we're, we're there now. 
Um, but then you still don't see, in my view, nearly enough uh, uh, people who represent communities, whether they are Hispanic or African-American, uh, Native American, and so on. And so I think we're doing a better job of that. Certainly the news hour has tried to be responsive in, in recent years. To that, we have hired a large number of individuals who represent these communities, but we certainly could need to do more. And I know other news organizations, uh, I would put them in the same slot. We're all working, many of us are working at it, but we have to do a better job. The news media who cover the country should look like the country that we cover. And, and that's, you know, we just, we have a, a fundamental responsibility to do that. So I wonder if you have any final reflections on PBS NewsHour as an institution. You know, it has this incredible past legacy that, of course, people can now watch on the AAPB website, AmericanArchive.org. Um, but we can also look to the future. I mean, do you see PBS NewsHour lasting for years to come? Well, I, I remember when I was hired in uh, 1975, uh, Jim Lehrer told me I had a job for 13 months. And uh, I was very excited about that. Uh, it turned into 46 years. And... You know, it, it evolved. It had uh, it had five names while I was there. It was the Robert McNeil Report, the McNeil Lara Report, the McNeil Lara News Hour, the News Hour with Jim Lara, and the PBS News Hour. And it, it evolves, but it the, the essence has not changed. It is an institution. I, I truly believe that. I think it it will it will continue to evolve. It will continue to reflect the times uh, and, and the technology. You know, I remember when we went to HD and we, we all said, why do we need to go to HD? <laughs> What's that? It's, it, you know, and when we went online, it, what, okay, we, everybody else is going online. We have to go online. We have evolved with the times. And as Judy has said, the, uh, the character and the makeup of our staff and our on-air people have has also evolved. And uh, I don't see any reason why it can't continue uh, on forever, so to speak. It's a uh, it's, it's a unique institution. It, it has a niche following. You know, we, we probably don't have the, the audience of the, of the network news, but even they don't have the audience they used to have. <laughs> so, uh, and I think we've probably grown while they've shrunk. <laughs> so uh, uh, I bump into people all the time who are a lot younger, and I, I'm stunned that they say they watch the news hour because we used to have this joke that we were only watched by retirees. Uh, but now we're watched by a lot of people and uh, of all ages. So I think it has a good healthy future. I would just add that Gwen and I, uh, when we were working together, used to say to each other that, you know, what, what we were doing was really about working for a newscast that we wanted to be able to pass on to the next generation. That it's, it's not so much what we were doing, either one of us, as it was making sure the news hour was going to stay strong into the future. And I think as I look around at my colleagues, you know, myself completely accepted, I think that we have been able to do that. We have an extraordinary group of journalists, the collective talent, wisdom, uh, judgment of the journalists I'm so lucky to work with every day gives me confidence that the news hour will continue and continue. Uh, of course, you know, there's the reality of finances because we are not commercial, we don't sell ads, you know, we have to raise the money from donors, not just from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, from individual stations, but also from foundations and um, individuals who support. But that has only grown. We have seen our the number of people who contribute the list. You see it at the beginning yes. of the show. It's grown <laughs> and grown. Uh, people believe in the program and what it does and what it represents. And I'll just say this, I have people come up to me and they just, you know, it's only because they recognize me and I stand for the news hour, but they will say to me things like, I couldn't live or I couldn't have gotten through the pandemic without the news hour. So, and I'm always passing that on to my colleagues because it's very much a group effort. But, but I think the news hour is, uh, has established itself. It's here to stay, uh, but we just have to keep you know, we also have to keep working at it every day. It requires an enormous amount of dedication, work, and belief in the mission every single day. And that's what's going to keep it going. Well, I think this conversation has proven the importance of believing in this program and supporting it and supporting public media. So I really appreciate the time you gave to us and to our listeners. And thank you for being with Presenting the Past. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. 
And listeners can check out all the segments we've highlighted here, plus thousands more in the PBS NewsHour collection on the American Archive of Public Broadcasting website, AmericanArchive.org. We are grateful to you listeners for being part of this episode of Presenting the Past. I'd also like to thank sound engineer Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin for his post-production work on this podcast and for composing our theme music. Thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick at the University of Winnipeg for his assistance with distributing the podcast. And thank you to Rin Marchese, Casey Davis-Kaufman, and Alan Gevinson for their help with planning and organizing these podcasts. Please join us next time for another deep dive into the digital resources of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. 